You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. Barbara Talley is a speaker, author, poet, and publisher who discovered the power of poetry at a young age. Since then, she has dedicated her life to social justice and activism. Barbara grew up curious about God and religion. In her interview with Cloud9, Barbara shares what it was like to be baptized in three different churches and almost joining the Nation of Islam. In her 20s, she encountered the Baha'i faith and was drawn to its teachings of oneness and nobility. In this interview, we learn more about Barbara's creative and spiritual journey and get to hear a few of her poems, offering insight into her vision for race unity. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us on Cloud9. Thank you. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. I'd like to learn a bit about where you grew up and could you describe what your family home and childhood looked like? I think it's always interesting to kind of gain a bit of perspective before you kind of move on into the current life and and how that's evolved over the years? Wow, that's opening a can of worms. Well, um, (laughs) um, I I grew up in, I was born in upstate New York and I uh, lived there uh, until my mid-20s and then I moved to the Washington, D.C. area. Um, uh, My childhood was eventful. <laughs> uh, my mother died at the, uh, the night before my third birthday. So it, uh, so sometimes when people ask that question, it's like, whoa, it's much happier today. But just so that you understand, you know, I guess it, it, it helped to, to, to understand the story because it was in upstate New York before I moved to this area that I first heard, heard about the Baha'i faith also. So I, uh, you know, growing up in, in upstate New York around Seneca Falls, most people know where Seneca Falls is because that's where women's rights started, you know, way back. These women that got together and decided that through their efforts, they're going to give, give people the right to um, have, have freedom. And then, of course, uh, Black men got the right to vote, but women didn't until 1920, so it was another 50 years. So, But it was in that area that people were thinking about justice, and I didn't realize that I was just a kid growing up. And my father did a lot of migrant work. And so we traveled from the north through the south, uh, traveling with the seasons. We would live on those old you know, farms or plantations uh, in those little dirt shack hovels. Um, working from sunrise to sunset to make ends meet. Did you have a lot of siblings? Yes. Well, uh, my father had six wives and 25 kids. All of them weren't together at the same time. But my my immediate family with my mother, there, there, was, there were six of us. And um, so, but when my mother died when I was age three, um, my brother, my, my older brother and sister, um, they were taken to an orphanage and then we were put in foster care. So we kind of got separated and then eventually we got back together. Um, so that's kind of like my early, early life. Um, my father religious wise was not religious, but he was spiritual. Uh, he was born in Aiken, South Carolina in 1909. So he, uh, and he had, he was a descendant of native Americans and Irish people and African Americans. So he grew up mixed and mixed up because he was quite fair-skinned. And in South Carolina in 1909, and maybe today, um, there were, you know, there's you know, 
there's the race issues. And so he kind of grew up mixed and mixed up. His family were church people. They were ministers. But he saw how they treated the darker skinned ones in the family. And so because of that, he kind of turned away from religion. So when we grew up, he told us, you know, it, it sounds blasphemous, but he says, you can throw the Bible in the fire. You don't need a book. You can talk directly to God. Uh, so in some respects, I didn't grow up having to um, be a particular religion, but I grew up realizing that there was a higher power. There was a God, there was a creator, and that I had the power to be able to connect with that being, and I didn't need a middleman. So in some respects, and, and people used to knock on the door. We lived in uh, many different places, as I said. We lived in Pennsylvania, many different, uh, you know, different towns in Pennsylvania. And uh, we lived in New York um, uh, in different towns. Um, but uh, my father, um, his, his story really impacted my story. Because, because he wasn't, if my friends didn't go to church, they, would, they didn't have a choice. The parents said, you go to church. That's what it was like in the black community. But in our family, it was like when the, the ladies would knock on the door and say, hey, Scotty, can those kids come to church? And he says, if they want to. It's really interesting. At a very early age, I had a choice to choose spirituality or not. I chose to go. I said, yes, I'd like to go. I'd like to know about God because they said that um, when my mom died, they said she was with God. And the church says, hey, we teach you about God. I'm thinking, wow, maybe I can figure out how to get back to my mother. I think in some respects, I mean, I didn't understand it. And, it was, and that was part of it. And part of it, I think, was the fact that there was a community in church. And that's one of the things that's so powerful about church, especially churches coming out of, you know, post-enslavement America, um, <clears throat> when you know that in the South, many places after slavery, they weren't allowed to congregate together. Three or four people together, they arrest you for vagrancy. Uh, the only places that it was okay to come together was the church. And so the church has a big, <clears throat> important place in the, in, 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 in the life of people of color probably most people, but more so for people of color. And I don't think people really understand the importance of community um, as, as a Baha'i for all of these years. And I became a Baha'i uh, in, uh, I actually signed the card when I was 15 or 16 years old. The first time I went to a Baha'i thing in, in New York, there was kids that had pizza and roller skating. And they said, uh, do you believe that there's one God? And I said, sure, <laughs> you know? I said, do you believe that there's only one human race and we should treat each other equally? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> they said, well, you sound like a Baha'i. I said, oh, okay. And they said, sign the card. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and these, this is the first time that you'd ever heard about the faith? The first time I heard about the faith, but I didn't, re I didn't know it was a religion. <laughs> <laughs> Some club. I, <laughs> I, I thought it was a social club because it was all these years. It was pizza and roller skating. It wasn't That's at a awesome. church to me. To me, the church domain, when you walk into church, you know they're trying to teach you some religion. You're not eating pizza when, and roller skating. When you're, when you're eating pizza and roller skating, you know, who, I didn't, how, do, how was I supposed to make the connection? So I joined that and I might have come to, uh, gone to a fireside. I have a vague memory of going to something at someone's house and then I kind of left, you know. And then I didn't see, I, I literally didn't become a Baha'i for nine years. <laughs> I, I, but I kept hearing about Baha'i here and there. People would say, oh, this is Baha'i. And I would say... Baha'i, I'm a Baha'i. No, girl, you ain't no Baha'i. <laughs> <laughs> but I signed the card when I was 16. 
I, I signed this card and then I was thinking, is it benign breath or is it something different? <laughs> I mean, after a while, I started wondering if I got it wrong because I did not know about Baha'u'llah. I did not know about the Bob. I didn't know about the Universal House of Justice. I didn't know about Shoga Fendi. I didn't know about local spiritual science. I knew nothing. But in upstate New York, I met, I met a Baha'i because I was actually going to a place where um, I was going to a place where um, I wanted to um, do some radio work. Mm -hmm. And this guy who was doing the radio, uh, I was auditioning to do some voiceover stuff. And he said, well, he was talking, somehow Baha'i came up. And I said, I'm a Baha'i. I didn't realize he was a Baha'i. And he said, and so we started talking because I knew nothing. You realize I didn't know anything. You're just so, going around saying I'm a Baha'i. <laughs> I just said I'm a Baha'i. And they were like, girl, you ain't a Baha'i because you know nothing. I didn't even know it was a religion. I thought it was a club. So he started, he says, I said, he was a Baha'i. I said, oh, finally I met another Baha'i now that I'm grown. Tell me what a Baha'i is. And he said, you know what he told me? Now, this is many years ago, you know, over 40 years ago. He told me it's too deep. You wouldn't get it. He no. Said, yes, he did. Oh, that's such a shame. Well, you know, you know, and I said, well, what is it you guys believe? Or what is it? And then he said, well, I said, you have a book or something? Everybody's got a book. They got Bibles. They got Quran. What's your book? And he said, well, there's a book called Thief in the Night. Mm. And I said, well, get, I want to get a book. And, he, and then he was saying the book was too deep. I said, well, let me be the judge of that. And then, and so in my mind, I was like, nobody can tell me what I can be, you know, which maybe that was a trick question. Maybe it was just, because if he, yeah. <laughs> you maybe that was the way he was getting people maybe I proved him wrong that, that it was too too deep but you know so that was kind of then I started uh, I was doing modeling up in upstate New York and um, one of my friends and I used to put on these fashion shows and she started going to Baha'i Firesides and I said she said Barbara you gotta come to this this is so amazing she was just amazed and she said, you have to come. And I said, I'll come to a fireside. And I never did go. But I kept saying I was going to come. And I kept saying, she said, then my job, which was at Eastman Kodak Company, moved me from Washington, D.C. I mean, moved me from upstate New York, Rochester, to Washington, D.C. And she said, Barbara, you had promised me all of these years that you were going to go to a fireside. You never did. And now you're moving. I said, well, I know. I said, they got Baha'is everywhere. I used to get a newspaper or something. I never read it, but... <laughs> And I promised her I would look up the Baha'is when I got to the Washington, D.C. area. And since I didn't know anybody, I did. And, and I thought to myself, you know, you, you know, it really says when the student is ready, the teacher appears. I don't know why I wasn't ready longer, because even before that, I got baptized three different times in three different churches because I was seeking spirituality, but didn't know how to find it. I wanted to be... I wanted something to happen. I was almost like mystical and mysterious. I wanted like hear bells from heaven and angels singing or something. And when I, I got baptized, I still was the same person. I was like, oh, okay, I guess it didn't take, you know? <laughs> so, so then I got I baptized. Uh, then I decided that I was gonna become, I met this woman in upstate New York and she was a Muslim. She was a black Muslim and I thought, okay. And she prayed five times a day in her house. I was so impressed with it. Even more than that, there used to be this wino, let's call him wino Joe. He'd be on the street. You know how you have these winos, people that are drunk and you just kind of walk on the other side just to ignore them. Well, back then, there was this guy, you, you were familiar with the guy because you walked past him all the time, literally walked past. One day I walked past this guy and the guy, they had cleaned him up. He was in a suit 
He had a suit and a bow tie and he was selling bean pies for the Nation of Islam. And I was like, that's that same guy. They pulled him up out of the, uh, off the street. They cleaned him up. They prayed for him. They saved him. Now I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, now I want to be a Muslim. Because of all those years of, of, of being a Christian, we walked past people. It was all about individual salvation. Everybody else, you know, the rapture, people going to hell. And, you know, um, even though I'd always had this question, why are there so many religions? So I was open because I wasn't forced to be closed. My father didn't force me to be closed. Parents typically say it's this way or no way. And typically we stop thinking, we stop questioning, which is one of the principles of my faith, independent investigation of truth. I always had the opportunity to independently investigate truth. Are you grateful to your dad for that? I definitely am grateful to my dad for that. You know, um, it's it's interesting that, uh, you know, my father, um, is it on one page, page 113? Let me see if it's, I don't know why 113 comes to mind. But my father, he had a lot of spiritual things, even though he didn't, I don't know that he knew of this faith. But my father used to put out these pink cards and he, when we would travel in the South, uh, he would say, he would give us a handful of cards and he would say, go over, go out and pass these out to people. And the card, it was called the Truth Society. He literally, you know, now we know that in the Baha'i faith, truthfulness is the foundation of all human virtues. And Abdul Baha, which is the son of the prophet uh, of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, when he's asked, what is the purpose of life? Like, why are we here? And he said, to acquire virtues. And, and so, but truthfulness is the foundation of all the virtues. And so my father, and so this must be probably 50, 60 years ago, he would pay, take his money and print out these little pink cards and he would have us go around and pass them out to people. He would not allow us accept any money. And this is what that, you know, it, 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 little pink cards. And the card says, dear God, please help me to try to understand the position I am placing myself in by taking this oath. I hereby take this oath before thee that I do not ever intend intentionally to tell a lie. And I will try to be friendly and respect everybody, regardless of race, color, or creed. And he wrote that? My father wrote that. My father was also a poet. And he took the Lord's Prayer. And he says, our father. And then he would say, whose father are you talking about? Is he white or colored? Or do you think that makes a difference with God? Who art in heaven? He says, if you were there, could you do any better? Here you use a Negro for a footstool and take advantage of his ignorance through your pride and arrogance. Hallowed be thy name. He says, here you call my mom and my grandmother by their first name, but even your children are to be miss and missus and to be politely spoken at every time. He took the Lord's prayer and put a race and, and, and looked at it from, through the lens of race. It was profound. My father. He was a visionary. Yeah, I didn't yeah. I didn't understand as much of who he was growing up. It was like go out in the hot sun and pass out these pink cards, but think about what he was saying. Dear God, please help me to try to understand the position I am placing myself in by taking this oath, an oath before thee that I do not ever intend intentionally to tell a lie. And I will try to be friendly and respect everybody regardless of race color or creed. So you see, you, I, my father, even though he didn't, even though he, di he didn't take us to a specific church and belong to a certain religion, he was definitely a spiritual being that was enlightened and he wanted justice. He wanted truth and he wanted justice. And I think that was instilled in me so much. So when I saw this Muslim lady praying five times a day and actually looking at the results of what she had done by picking this guy up off the street, you know, 
and they saved him before he looked dirty and whatever. And then he was, you know, he had his humanity back. Mm. He stood proud in his suit with his bow tie. You know, he, I mean, so that, so I literally had decided then now I'm going to become Muslim. You realize, even though I've become Baha'i, I didn't realize it was a religion. So nine years I'm going through this search. And so I go to the temple the day that we're going to go. And I decided I was going to become a Muslim. And she picked me up at my house. We rode together. And when we got out of the car, there were two males sitting in the front. And we sat in the back. And when we get out, and, and so I, walk, I, I do everything fast. I walk fast, talk fast. My stride is fast. So I'm walking a little fast. And she puts her arm out to the, mean, like, slow down, let the men have some distance. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, she probably wants to say something to me. She don't want them to hear. But no, I think that was like tradition. I'm like, uh-oh. Then I get to the build, I get to the temple, and I open the door, and all the women are sitting in, on one side, dressed in white, their heads in white. A uh, white thing on their head, and they're dressed in white, and the men are on the other side. And I said, "Do they have to dress like that?" And she said, uh, "You'll learn." And I'm like, oh, "Wait a minute! I think I've been presumptuous here." <laughs> I said, "Let me." She said, "No, come on in." So I, I literally got cold feet like a bride, and I said, "No, uh, I, I, I'll just catch a taxi back home. I'm sorry, I, I'm not ready for this." And that was kind of the end of that, because equality of men and women is something that was some. It was something that deeply. Uh, affected me. And I realized that that had to be, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not a, a militant, but I'm a revolutionary. <laughs> and I, I realized that women needed to be equal. And that just didn't make sense. Even though I didn't understand Islam, mm. I didn't understand it, but I understood enough to know that this is something serious. These people are, uh, and, and I need to, to do a little bit more research before I decide to become it. Because I need to be it or not be it, you know. Because in the Bible, as well as in the in in the Baha'i faith, there are quotes that says, you know, I wish that thou were hot or cold and not lukewarm, because so many people are just lukewarm. He says, I wish you were either hot, just be on fire with this, or cold, just say, look, I don't care. But all these people just sitting in the middle—that's that's the reason that we have the challenges that we have today. So when fact, when was the what was the steps that you took to then declare as a Baha'i and become involved in the community life and? Well, what happened was I moved from my comfort zone area of Rochester, New York, where I knew people, to a place in Washington D.C. where I didn't know anybody. And because my friend, I had promised my friend that I would look up the Baha'is, I called this woman, and her name happened to be Louise Love. I mean, she had a name like Love, you know, and I tell her this call. I said, look, I've, I've signed this card to be a Baha'i so many years ago, but I don't know what it is. Can you tell me what it is? I need to be it or not be it. And she, of course, Baha'is live for calls like that, <laughs> you know, that someone can, that they can share, you know, their share these. This She'd probably been praying for months for something like that. Yeah. Here I was. <laughs> I, she said, of course. And she happened to live near where I was, uh, I had gotten an apartment. Uh, and, and so I just started going to these weekly firesides and literally, you know, just the, the one main question I had was, why are there so many religions? And in explaining progressive revelation, it made sense. It was like, finally, somebody makes sense that God, it's not this or this or this when we're looking at Islam or Christianity or Judaism. Or, it's not this or this. It's this and this and this and this. It was just a little change of a word changed everything. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it was like then I started, you know, it's like literally my mind opened up. I got that visceral experience, the experience that I was expecting. I mean, I literally felt 
like a new person. I mean, I mean, my mind, I, every, I mean, it was like I became this thirsty, I don't know, like I was somebody in the desert. And every time I went to the Baha'i meetings, the information that they shared from Baha'u'llah that was for our day and age, it was everything I needed to be able to, to live in this world. You now. mentioned Thief in the Night. Did you ever read it and finish it? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and and were you? Was it? Was it too deep? <laughs> well, I here's what I think. I think maybe it could be deep, but I think when you really take a spiritual search, you arise to the occasion. You know, there's something called divine perception. There's so, there's many ways to learn. Where we learn from, you know, academic, or we learn from spirit. We learn, but there's I think there in this case it was divine perception because I literally got smarter. I don't know if I was smart enough before it, but you know, when you read the writings from this re- this revelation and you read the depth of it and the whatever it is, these words from God have a power, and I think we're all designed to be able to get it when we're ready. Perhaps I was not ready then. Maybe I was just more of a cur- curious bystander rather than be a seeker. And you know that even in the Bible it says that when you seek, when you knock, when you ask, but you have to be humble and you have to be ready. Many people are called, as they say, but few are chosen because many people are not real. They, they approach spirituality, finding their God, finding out in a, in a curiosity thing. And sometimes in an arrogant perspective, like prove something to me, as opposed to being a humble, a humble servant of the creator of, of all there is, the great being, and then asking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to get into your poetry now. Uh, I know at the age of 12, you wrote your first poem. And it was written in an act of protest towards your teacher, because she opposed to calling you black. Could you elaborate more on the story and perhaps share this poem if you still remember it? Yeah, yeah. It, very interesting, because as my, as I said, my father wrote stuff. He was a writer um, in between us doing migrant work and he had a fish market. So basically he, he wasn't earning livelihood by his calling either, but he would do that for service. But I was in upstate New York in school. And I remember there was a year that, uh, I think it was probably 68, 69, when James Brown came out with the, uh, the song, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Say it loud. Back then, to be black was like blasphemous. In fact, my, my stepmom and dad, they, they, they wanted to be called Negro. When you call somebody black, that was like insulting. You didn't want to be black. People were putting on bleaching cream so that they weren't black. So to be able to own the word black. So I remember in my, uh, you know, where I grew up in upstate New York, there was only about five or six families that lived there year round. And then there would be families that would come in for the, for the harvesting, for the migrant work, for is there strawberries and apples and uh, um, all of that in the, the Mott's and Seneca, you know, applesauce, all that business is up there. So a lot of migrant workers would come from the South up here to do that work. And so from September, maybe to the first frost, maybe December, you would have lots of blacks in the school. Whenever they would talk about Black History Month, all of us blacks would just slink in our chair because we, we, they would look at, they would show a picture of Aunt Jemima. She was like a slave. She's like a cook. She's subservient. But anyway, a bunch of us decided that we did not want them calling us colored. Uh, we didn't want them to call us Negro. We decided that we were going to own the word black. And so in school, um, we took these little circular, we cut out a little circle, circle and put a little safety pin. Back then, everybody had safety pins. And we, on it, we said, call me black. And I remember my teacher at the time, and we, we would come to school, we all agreed that this is, I guess this is our own, you know, social movement um, in, in, in high school. 
And we put on the little sign saying we're black. And I remember my teacher was saying, Barbara, you're not black, you're brown. My shoe is brown. And why are you doing that? You know, because it was some kind of solidarity. It was something about us deciding what we wanted to be. And so um, each day we would do it. She would just shake her head. And then after a while, they sent me to the office. And uh, at the office, you had to meet the Board of Education, which is actually a physical board with holes drilled in it. And they would swat you. They, would, they hit us a few times just because we wanted to be called black. And so um, after the first frost, they kind of left us alone and me alone until when there were a lot of blacks. But when they left and it was just two or three of us standing there with it, they said, okay. my teacher said, now, Barbara, enough of that nonsense. Nonsense, she called it. And uh, I put the sign on the next day by myself. She sent me to the office. They swatted me a few times with the paddle. They had corporal punishment back then. They could hit you. And then I did that two, three times. And then he said, I'm going to call your dad. Well, I didn't want him to call my dad because my dad would have whipped me very badly. My dad, he didn't give you a whipping. He gave you a whooping. That means he'll hit you with a switch or a stench cord or belt or whatever it is. So I would have really, we'll call it child abuse today, but back then they called it discipline. And so um, I decided that I would just not do that. So I started writing. I got angry. I'm like, why can't, why, I'm not bothering them. I'm not putting a pin on them. I'm just saying, call me black. And basically they're saying, you have no rights. We'll call you what you want. So I said, I went home and this is one of the first poems that I remember. I used to write poems all the time, but this one I wrote to my English teacher because I got angry and I had no, I had no way of expressing myself. So I wrote this. I said, I was sitting in class when my teacher asked why I insisted on being called black. With a puzzled frown, she said, you're more of a brown. So I schooled her in on the fact. Why, she asked, does colored oppose you and Negro and names like those? I said, well, it seems to me you're not too fond of being called any of the names we've chose. Actually, we are blacker than you are white because our color doesn't range. If we are black, we stay that way. But you, your color changes. When you're embarrassed, you turn all red. When bruised, you turn all blue. So I asked you, why are you called white when colored would more suit you? When you're sick, you're yellow and pale. When scared, you turn all white. And your normal color is more of a pink. Are you sure that you were named right? Yes, we are black and we are proud and we want our heritage to show. So we use this name without any shame to let all you quote unquote white people know. Wow. How old were you when you wrote that? Twelve. So. Oh, my gosh. You know, so because um, wow. yeah, basically back then our, our high school went from six to twelve. We didn't break it up in middle school back then. But anyway. I did, you were angry. I was angry and I had no other outlet. So I just wrote something down. So and I, you shared that. Did you share that with anybody? I brought it to school the next day and I uh, went up and I handed it to my teacher. One of those teachers that wrote, had her little glasses on her nose. You know, yes. And I, and I said, she says, what? And I said, I wrote something and she read it. And I didn't know if I'd get in trouble and get sent to the office. But at the end of it, she said, she looked, she took off her glasses and she just looked at me and she said, you put a lot of thought in this. And I was very humble at that point. Yes, ma'am, because I didn't want to get sent to the office and get another whooping. But she says, well, I get it. Okay, I'll call you black. So you immediately learned the impact of, of I poetry. I immediately learned because what, she, what I found is wearing the pen and us blacks, you know, marching and don't mess, you know, whatever. People didn't see us. They tuned us out. But when I wrote those words, and she being an English teacher, I mean, if I, it had been math or science, I probably would have still been limping today because maybe they sent me to the office again. But because she was an English teacher, she understood it. And she, was, she said, I'm going to put this in the school paper. And so I realized then that maybe it's not through the anger and it, maybe it's not through the force that I could change minds and hearts. Perhaps 
By a few chosen rhyming words, I could get people to think. You know, Baha'u'llah says that poetry moves the hearts more deeply than prose. I didn't know that at the time, but he was equipping me with a skill to be able to take all that rumbling inside and be able to express it. Mm. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to look at it. So fast forward a few years later, you came across an African priestess that had some news for you that was quite shocking. Am I right? Oh, yes. So we uh, uh, fast forward, I've written, I've written a bunch of books. I've been a Baha'i for many years and being involved in, you know, the, all of the Baha'i stuff, the, the teacher, you know, the, the community outreach stuff uh, became a tutor for the Ruhi. And of course, Ruhi is, is, a, organ, uh, is a series of, of lessons that we can sit down and study the divine word together in a, in a very um, intimate atmosphere and get to know each other because the word of God has the power to transform us. So fast forwarding th- uh, through that, I, I've written a bunch of books like On Track, On Fire, On Purpose, an inspired system for using your vision, values, and virtues. I'd written a book called Minor Miracles that was poetry, which says my, and minor was M-I-N-E-R, not M-I-N-O-R, like mine. Because there, I was very inspired by this, um, this verse from Baha'u'llah that says, regard man as a mine rich in gems of inestimable value. Rich in gems. If we looked at each other, not by our color, our class, our age, or whatever that, but we looked at each other as a mind, and with a mind, you just got to dig for it. Unfortunately, so many people dig for, for um, dirt instead of diamonds. But anyway, I'd, I'd written a few books, and I was having a book signing, and this lady came up to me at my friend's house, and she says, you are not a poet and an author. And I was thinking, boy, that's kind of rude. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, she sat there like she was somebody. She, she, you know, she was at an African garb on and she sat there and she said, I'm an African priestess. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I don't know about this. And she says, she says, you are not an author. You are, she said, you think you're an author. You think you're a poet, but you are a griot. Now, I didn't know what that was. She could have been cussing me out, but I was like, okay. <laughs> Went home and looked it up. You know, back then we didn't have our smartphones where I could just say, hey, Google, what's a griot? You know? <laughs> Siri. <laughs> yeah. But then you have to wait. Yeah, you got to go home and look at a dictionary and go find mm-hmm. what that was. And Griot was an African storyteller. And she says, with all of your poetry, you're telling stories. And I thought, wow. Because we know that being separated from Africa, there's a lot about who we are that we've, we've lost track of. But fortunately now with DNA and one, two, three and me and ancestry, we can figure out some places where we came from. It's almost like your dad, your dad was also a griot and, and he, he channeled this yes. to his children. Yes. Yes. And, and that's why I'm a poet and Radiance is a poet. So I'm, I'm always. You're, you're trying. Yeah. You're passing this down passing to your ancestors down. and you didn't even know that there's I, an origin. I, here. Did, yeah. I didn't even know that, but you know, I'm, I'm very excited to, to one day, you know, in my future to be able to go to the countries in Africa where I come from. It's West Africa, yeah, right? Yeah. Can you describe what it is? It's storytelling, but there's there like a rhythm to it or kind of language or metaphors that you use? Well, here's the thing. Um, she told me I was a griot after I'd written, you know, a few hundred poems. And so, <laughs> so, so even though I know that there's such a thing as a griot. I, I took that as uh, as as someone as messages from the, from from the ancestors that this is something I need to research. But quite frankly, I haven't even really done a lot of research on it. I just I, I looked it up at the time. It says storytelling, and it's interesting that most of my poems are all rhyming and they all mm-hmm. tell a story. They're not 
you know, they're not abstract. You know, for example, that that one poem I I, I, I just told you there it, uh, about that. You, you see that we were sitting in class, my teacher, you know, so it's like telling a story with the rhythm in it. But there's it's, it's there's also that so that piece of social activism. But it's also much, much, much of the things that I write about are about uh, real things. So like one of my, um, my one of my signature poems is is, is is called Finding the Jewels Within You. Now, much of what I do in life, as well as what I write about, is all influenced by these wonderful teachings from the Baha'i faith. I mean, you think, I was, I, I grew up thinking that, I grew up, the first job I went to go to, they told me in that little small town in New York that they didn't hire black people. The first apartment I went to, they slammed the door, they didn't hire, they didn't want to rent to me. I'm growing up with a lot of racism, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you just look at the, you know, history, you know, and you, you realize Dr. King's marching in 68 and people are putting hoses on him, dogs and wrestling. Him. So you think about if you grow up in an era in a time like that, the way we look at the world today was, was totally different. We didn't know that we had value. When I read the quote that really just the, the words of God that really transformed me, it says, noble, I created thee. You know, I had grown up thinking I was a sinner. It had to do with Eve and the apple and all that stuff. And we're sinners, sinners, sinners. But to say, noble, I created thee. Like, and these were the words of the, the prophet of the Baha'i faith. Yes, the words of the prophet of Baha'u'llah, you know, the prophet Baha'u'llah is telling me that you are noble, Barbara. You were created noble. It doesn't matter if somebody looks at you and sees the color. It doesn't matter if somebody looks at you and sees your gender as less. It doesn't matter that somebody looks at you and sees your class as less. You were created noble. You were created. Could you share this poem? Yeah, this with us. Yes, I'll share. Yeah, so this poem it's called "Finding the Jewels Within You." All you need is one to believe in your dreams. That one can be anyone, or so to me it seems. Just someone to spark your desire to dig inside. Someone you can trust. Someone in whom you can confide. There's got to be someone who sees your light, who'll spur you on to win your fight. There's got to be someone who'll see you through. But in the end, that someone must ultimately be you. A parent, a counselor, a stranger, a friend, anyone with a word of encouragement to send. Have faith in yourself. Bring forth your own jewels. Belief in yourself is your most important fuel. I ought to do that. I ought to do this. Nothing results from I ought to. I wish. I wish without action will bring no spoils to light. You must channel your energy. You must work. You must fight. You must focus your attention on powerful thoughts. Collect a life full of I dids instead of I ought. Can't you see it? Your brilliant light within. And can't you feel the fire burning from your right and desire to win? Anyone can help you get started. Anyone can help you stay on track. But you must learn to drive your own train or you'll continue to hold yourself back. I took my bag of tools. I studied all the rules. I enlisted help from supporters and I dismissed ill wishers and fools. I started to dig though no jewels were visible. I continued to mine when I was tired and miserable. And I continued with any and everything that I saw. And sometimes with just my own two hands. The point is I continued to dig and dig until I was just too tired to sing. 
And then even some of my friends said, I should just stop, that I was wasting my time, that there were no jewels to be found and least of all mine, even well-meaning family trying to protect me from a disappointing end. And many relationships were lost because I had no time to spend on them. So when mining your own jewels, the ones you know are inside, be careful who you entrust. Be careful to whom you confide. I kept digging and hoping and praying and knowing. And finally one day, I noticed something was showing. I don't know when it happened. Perhaps when I began the quest or when I finally put all my faith and trust in God and persevered without doubt or rest. <laughs> you see, I'd reached my goals, my dreams, my gems. And there wasn't just one jewel. There were thousands of them. It wasn't over. It wasn't the end. Now there are new goals on the horizon. It's time to begin all over again. So I offer you this advice. In whatever you choose to do, you owe it to yourself to find the jewels that are inside of you. Wow. Wow. I wish I wish we could. I'm I'm watching on video right now and it was so beautifully dramatized with your body movements that I wish we could somehow capture this for this for this podcast. Thank you so much, Barbara, for sharing. You mentioned uh, yourself as first and foremost a Baha'i who uses poetry to heal, educate and create a historical narrative of the age that we live in. So can you elaborate on ways you work to heal and educate? I know that you're a facilitator. Um, you you offer many, many workshops and, and you're an author and a speaker. Could you just elaborate a little bit more on Yes. Your healing and educational process. Yes. So, yes. And I like what you say. It's, it's healing. <laughs> it, it heals me as I heal humanity. Yeah, I felt I felt healed after yeah. just watching and listening to you share that beautiful poem. Wow. Well, thank you. Well, you know, I, I, I one of the things that I started doing earlier on in the career, because we're told that the, the best of all men is he who earns a livelihood by his calling. Baha'u'llah, the, the words are so beautiful. The best of all men is he who earns a livelihood by his calling. He also says the best thing in my sight is justice. You know, he talks about unity. Know why we created you all from the same dust that no one should exalt himself over the other. He also said, regard man as a mind rich in gems of inestimable value, as I mentioned from that poem. So with all of these things circulating in my head, I had to figure out how do I, you, what, what kind of career can I have where I can bring these things together and teach, teach others, encourage others, help people to understand their value and their worth. So uh, as a motivational speaker with the, the books uh, that I, I, I've mentioned, 12 Spiritual Habits, um, it initially was 12 Spiritual Habits, and now it's you know the, exact, the excitement of value-based living. Superwoman doesn't live here anymore. Minor Miracles, On Track, On Fire, and On Purpose. Are These just, are titles of your books. Yeah, titles of some Our books. listeners can find. Yeah, so, so um, what they... What the, each of the books really talks, it, it takes one of these quotes and says, well, how do I manifest this? How do I mine for the jewels within? If, if you're told that regard man as a mine rich in gems of an estimable value, that means nobody's worth less. You know, some people just, you know, some diamonds might be on the surface, but if you really look at what, what a diamond has to go through to become a diamond, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of dirt. You don't just find diamonds on the surface. 
So it's the same. So, so the Baha'i faith, what I loved about it, it, it creates a community where you can come together and, and discover and explore the, the, your spiritual uh, legacy, your spiritual heritage, your spiritual identity together. Because the world looks at us through material eyes. You're tall or short, pretty or not, you know, whatever it is, they, they put you in a box and you're worth something or you're worth less. But, but, but in, in the Baha'i community, with these wonderful teachings, we get to study this. And so initially, you know, 30 years ago, I, I um, probably, it was actually, you probably wouldn't believe it, but I started off with, in, in, in IT. I was actually doing technology. I mean, literally took C programming. That doesn't feel like your calling. It didn't feel, that's what I'm saying. I wasn't <laughs> in my calling. And then I found this quote, but, but I love technology because I love the logic of it because the world didn't make sense. And, you know, when you have, you're trying to write a program, it, you know, it either, you know, you put in this, this is what comes out. That's what input output. Most people expect to get something out that you didn't put in, even in mm-hmm. life. But I, I remember, um, uh, uh, Nat Rutstein, many years ago, one of the Baha'is had something called the Baha'i Institute for Race. I mean, he had um, uh, Institute for Healing of Racism. And being obedient, and, then, and in 1992, in that area, the race unity statement came out. And I started, I'm doing technology, but I'm also being obedient about... What's the statement? The, the, the race unity statement? It's yeah. The 1992 race unity statement, it's a vision of race unity that was put out by the National Spiritual Assembly. It's a, of the Baha'is of the United States. Of the Baha'is of the United States. And they took out full page ads in the paper. and basically, Wow. It's a wonderful document. And we were all just inspired by this vision. It started to inform my thoughts. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, how do I teach this oneness? And so Nat Rutstein had come out with a book um, about um, um, Baha'i uh, healing racism. And so we started a group of the Baha'i started a, an organization called the Baha'i Institute for Race Unity. We're talking about the late 80, not 1989. And so we started having a couple of, of events every single month. In fact, it says the vision of race unity, the most challenging issue. And that's really based on Shoghi Effendi wrote a, a, a letter that became a book called The Advent of Divine Justice to the American Baha'i saying, look, it, here's what you need to do to deal with the racist, racism in America. And if you don't deal with the, the relationship between the black and the white, if you don't deal with it, blood will run in the streets. This was in 1938. So this vision of race unity was really kind of based on that, but it's a, wonder, it's a wonderful document that says, you know, it's entirely human to fail if that which we hold most important, our dignity is, is taken for granted. You know, it's like that Muslim young man, the young, there was a wino laying there and people only saw the wine, they saw the dirt, they didn't see the diamond. And the Muslim brothers and sisters, they saw the diamonds. So when we see the diamonds in each other, so I started off doing, so after this race unity stuff, I, I started inviting speakers to come and talk about race unity um, at our monthly events. And eventually I met some people who were actually doing diversity training and they're saying, Barbara, you ought to come do this because of all the stuff you're talking about, you should- You're already doing it. You're, you're already doing it. I didn't know there was a job yeah. paying people to do that. Yeah. So I made the transition in the 90s uh, to doing diversity training. Then that turned into uh, diversity training, conflict resolution, um, uh, uh, sexual harassment. So I I literally got into all of this stuff about justice because Baha'u'llah said the best thing of all in my sight is justice. So I started doing that. And of course, you know, as a mother with six trying to balance work, I started my own business in 1987. So I'm an entrepreneur. So I'm trying to run a business, trying to raise six kids, trying to do two Baha'i events a month, trying to do all of this stuff. So that's when I wrote 
a book called, you know, Superwoman or a poem called Superwoman Doesn't Live Here Anymore because it was like, I can't do it all. I'm not Superwoman. I know I'm capable of doing anything, but I still can't do everything. And then so I started writing more and more poetry. And so, so it kind of comes out in my books. It comes out in just poetry itself. Uh, you have a blog as well. So I've, I've read that you have over a thousand poems and they live in books and, and blogs and also your keynote speakers. So you have all these different avenues where you're offering exactly. your, your talent. And the great thing about it, it allows me to focus it because I could, I'm interested in so many things. I could be all out there, but the Baha'i t- teachings kind of, they guide me, they keep me focused. It's, it, my stuff is about justice. It's about oneness. It's about love. It's about unity. It's about uh, our connection to each other and that we are our brother's keepers. It's, it's about uh, vision. It's about, yeah, it's about, I've also read, like you do a lot about balancing work and, and family exactly. and coherence and uh, women's issues, yeah. personal empowerment, yeah. diversity, as you've mentioned. Yeah. So I, it, it morphs. It's like, it's like, and where do you share these, where do you share these workshops and facilitate these spaces? Lately, I've been doing a lot of work uh, with uh, uh, appreciative inquiry, change management stuff. Um, and I've been working in places like correctional facilities, 911, um, other organizations, because these are people that are under a lot of stress. So I've just gotten some recent training in uh, a technique called heart math. And heart math is about the connection between our heart and our brain and mm-hmm. things like appreciation and love and, and kindness, uh, gratitude. It, it, it sends a coherent signal from the heart to the brain. You can actually measure it and see it on, on, on uh, software equipment. Um, but if you are angry and hate and frustrated and all that stuff. It makes a, a very jagged kind of thing. And it really lowers our, our ability to uh, be able to have coherence with the brain and be conscious and aware and be able to think clearly and all that stuff. So as I say, I keep morphing and becoming more. And that's why I said there wasn't just one jewel. There were thousands of them, just as there were, there were, were the poems. And so, um, but a lot of it was around race, family, um, motivation, inspiration. It sounds very personal. These are things that you're also experiencing in your own daily life. Exactly. And learning and sharing with others. Exactly. And on top of on top of everything else, you're also in the Baha'iteachings.org Advisory Council for Race and Unity. Could you share a little bit about what, what that is? So, so the Advisory Council, what we do there is because people are all over the page, all over the place with race, with their lack of knowledge and insensitivities. And, you know, I've always learned that if you're attacking or defending, you're not in the mood of learning. So sometimes when we come to that race conversation, people are attacking or just defending. Well, I'm not racist, I'm this, or you don't mean any. So then they're not in the mood of learning. So people will want to write stuff for, for the, um, the high teachings, but sometimes the perspective or the lens they're from, they, they have, they may offend people. So what the council is... Unknowing, like unintentionally? Unintentionally, yeah, Yeah. most most definitely unintentionally. Mm -hmm. They want to write from their experience, but they don't know that something they're saying might be offensive to a a person of color. So our group is there to look over the articles that have to do with race before they get out. And we all, there's, 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 uh, you know, I think five or five, five of us. And whenever there's an article, we all read the article. We all give our perspective. We all ask, we recommend changes or we recommend you don't post this. You're going to make a whole bunch of black people mad if you do, or, do, or maybe write it this way or something like that. So the whole purpose is that, you know, and I have to, um, I really commend Payam for, for doing this and, and, and caring enough to say, I understand that I, as a Persian don't know, maybe the white person who's writing that article doesn't know, but together, if we can have the conversation, we can both learn. 
What are some articles that you have really appreciated the perspective? Um, you know, you're asking me, having gone to bed at 6 a.m. to remember a specific <laughs> article. I'm just thinking of like, if there are people out there who want to write about an experience, and you've mentioned that there are some things that might offend people, what are some things, rather than focusing on the negative... Uh, what are some what are some perspectives or that you would appreciate hearing that you think could we could hear more of in in spaces in in media and on the web? Okay, two things. One is that if you tell your story, that's not offensive, especially when you're saying this is who I am, this is how I grew up. But my my hope is that I become more prejudice free. If you just admit where you are, but what really gets challenging for people of color is people that learn a little bit of information and they they try to to put it out like they know it all when obviously, see, I want to know your story. Tell me your story. I can't argue with your story. Your story is your story. I mean, just like I was grew up in a black house, some people grew up, grew up in a white house. That's it's subjective. It's, it's relative. Yeah. So I, I'm not going to argue with your story. And I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm even more impressed if you have a story you're saying, but I know that this story... This, 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 this acculturation that I grew up into, this environment I grew into, this is not who I want to be. And this is my journey towards oneness. I love stories like that. But when people try to tell people you shouldn't do this and black people need to realize and one of the big things we get a lot of is uh, we need to get over slavery. It's back in the past. There's no discrimination. And they haven't lived that truth. Or, or even, yes, mm-hmm. or, or even then they, they want to just throw out a lot of Baha'i quotes or let's be one and let's not focus on it as if focusing on it is the reason why we have all the issue. So things that say, I think a lot of times people want to, if they're trying to convince us not to be upset, and things are going to be okay and whatever it is, rather than tell me what you're doing to make it okay. I don't care. I mean, I don't need, I mean, I have access to many of the writings, so I don't need people to, to throw a lot of quotes at me. What I want to know is how do these writings transform your life? What do they do to make you better? That story I'm interested in. But in that light, we are putting together, uh, the council is putting together, as we speak, a, a guide for people who want to write about race, some guidelines so that rather than put something out and then not be accepted, but saying, look, here's the guidelines. And they must be grounded in the teachings, grounded in your experience. You know, uh, if, and, and so there'll be a list of those. We don't have that quite yet, but we, one of the things we've asked for, because it's, we know that Baha'u'llah says guidance towards right action is far superior to punishment for wrong action. So we really want to guide people to the right action. And so, and as we're saying, and not to be afraid of, of trying to tackle exactly. this issue, but doing it in a very diplomatic and tactful, exactly. respectful exactly. way. Yeah. But you cannot lose if you tell you. So here, here's another thing. There's four different kinds of stories you can talk about. Reality. You talk about the race reality. At the end of the race reality, if I'm on the bottom and you're on the top, unless you've told me you're going to do anything, you've just ripped off a bandage and reminded me how things suck in my life. So... If you're trying to say, oh, and then sometimes when white people get woke or person get woke, they, they think, oh, my God, I'm woke. And so they're telling us about this reality. They learned about how bad it is for blacks and how they're paid less for this and how they get called back less and all the people. that. If, that, if, if you only give me a woke conversation because you're waking up, all you've done, if you haven't done anything to change the, the justice, you've just kind of, you know, ripped off my bandage uh, to remind me how bad it is. So that's one of the things. If you're gonna have a reality conversation, end it with what you're gonna do. So there's reality con- conversations, there's equity conversations. I mean, or, or let's go with equality next. Equality conversations are like, 
we get all the same thing. Well, if I'm dig, if I'm dug down in a hole and you're up on a pedestal already, if we get the same equality from here on out, we're never going to have justice, right? Imagine somebody that's dug in a hole because we weren't allowed to have, you know, our forefathers, you know, a couple grandparents ago weren't allowed to read and write, weren't allowed to go to the same schools, weren't allowed to get the pay the same. The red line, he couldn't live in the right neighborhoods. All of this stuff is dug by black people down in a hole. If you look at the savings of black people versus white people, it's, it's, it's abysmal. So even when we, when we get old, it's like we still have to depend on people. We don't, we don't have the spoils of, of slavery to be passed down to us like most white Americans do, you see? And, and, and the, the, the vantage point of having, living in a, in a society where you have institutionalized racism. So if you have a conversation about reality, you gotta be careful about that because you, you're gonna, unless you're gonna end it with, here's the reality, here's what I'm doing, I don't wanna hear your reality. I don't need to know every time a white person wakes up. Unless you're telling me you're gonna, uh, wakes up, there's different levels of waking up. One is that, oh, now I know what's doing. But just to be waking up and sitting there and going, oh, if you do something, I want to know about that. If you're going to do something to change this reality, then there's the equity conversation, there's the equality conversation. But the final conversation is justice. I want a justice conversation. If you're writing about justice, I'm all in. I think what you mentioned is is what are you doing about it? And and there's so there's there's so much in the Baha'i faith that gives us that there's so many tools that that give us the the power to actually contribute in this discourse, whether we're colored, whether we're we're mixed race or whatever. And I think I see the children's classes and the junior spiritual empowerment program, these conversations that are happening with the future voters and the future adults and the future leaders as very kind of empowering ways of being part of that that discourse and that dialogue and, and the direct service in, in our communities. Oh yes. You know, and that's what's so what I love about the faith because it's not about personal salvation. It's about salvation of humanity. I mean, I was just looking at some of the things uh, with widening embrace that, that, have you watched the widening embrace video? Yeah. So it's a new film that was released by the Universal House of Justice. Yes. About the, about how these activities are taking place in, in and around the world. That was so amazing because in the Bible where it says the meek shall inherit the earth, they are inheriting the earth. You know, people are coming into communities with these, with these tools uh, these junior youth and children's classes and and study circles and they're te- that address equity and justice. Yes, and they're teaching people exactly to, education. People that can't read find out you know that now we can read because of this. Now we're starting our own schools. Now we're we're being able to be self sufficient. Uh, you know, so yes, I I think people. One of the things that's so exciting is that we have the tools. We're we're trying to perfect um, a, a system to offer to the world in exchange for what they have right now. I like how you said we're trying to perfect because we're still. Yeah, we're about trying this to perfect. It. Yeah, we're not. We're not there yet. But, yeah. But we have a vision. We know that in the Bible it says, "Without a vision, the people perish," and this is why we see so many people perishing around the planet because they have no vision. But we have a vision. We have a vision for racial unity. We have a vision for peace. We have a vision for justice. And so what Baha'is are just trying to do everywhere through these core activities, we call them core activities because, you know, we have our firesides and we have our study circles and we have devotional devotional meetings meetings where we just Mm -hmm. come and pray and everybody is welcome to bring any kind of prayer they want or no prayer, but just come. And in a spiritual environment, we love each other. We care about each other. The Universal House of Justice, which is our our administrative uh, guide uh, these days, because in many religions, after the manifestation dies, the prophet, the religion gets splintered. But in the Baha'i faith, we, uh, we were given a, a divine 
um, process to spiritualize the planet by the, the, the prophet himself. And so the Universal House of Justice, we elect people from around the world uh, every five years by secret ballot, no electioneering, no balloting, to be able to look at what's going on in the world. And so, you know, the Universal House of Justice, as you, as you mentioned, put out that document or that video, a widening. That's a document. Yeah, yeah. I see these films as, as much as they're videos, they're documenting. Oh, yeah, they're documenting the, the progress. Reflection and process. Oh, and it, progress. I mean, it was so uplifting to me because it basically you could see that the meek were inheriting the earth. And they said when they had their unit, they had their, they just had their election um, it, last month, that this is, you know, they had people from, you know, Africa. They said years ago in the beginning, many of the people were just Persian and, and, and white people who were on the Universal House of Justice. Now those nine people from the Universal House of Justice represent countries. They're from their own country. They're from Latin America. They're from the Arabic nations. They're from Africa. You know, they're from the United... So basically you have people coming together and saying, let's save our world together. I mean, to me, we, we, what's so profound about this is we just had a global election. A global election when we have a hard time just having a, a country election, a state election, a local a election. global democratic election, a global, that's yeah. huge, mm. that's huge. We're perfecting something. We're perfecting a process to hand over to the world one day to say, and we're doing it. I mean, 166 countries were represented. 1300 representatives came together. Wow. This is, I mean, we, so when you talk about what are we doing about it? The Baha'i Faith offers so many avenues on what you can do. Any, I mean, any youth or child or an adult can do anything they want. If they feel that they don't have energy, they can just pray, <laughs> you know? Yes. It's exciting. Yes. We all, have, we all have the capacity to contribute and be a part of this discourse, especially when it comes to race. So you'd mentioned earlier, Baha'u'llah notes that poetry is more powerful than prose and it moves hearts more deeply. Could you share that poem that you'd mentioned earlier uh, as a closing uh, part of this of this podcast episode. Sure, this one is called "Love and Hate," and the story behind it because it's Griot style. Even though I didn't know it. <laughs> the story behind <laughs> it is I had in in my local area here. I'd gone out to a little area for my. I had a babysitter who was who was uh, Caucasian, and I went to her daughter's wedding. And the KKK happened to be walking down the street right by the firehouse where she was having her thing. No. Oh yeah. my. So, so, wow. So I caught in the middle of this and I look very closely and I see that under the sheets, under the robe is a young kid. And I'm like, really just really kind of, it, it kind of, I, I could not hate him back because I'm thinking somebody taught this kid to hate, you know, they taught, they taught him to hate. And what if my kid had joined, had grown up in an environment where they were taught to hate? We can't hate people because they have whatever they have right now. We've got to love them back into humanity. And my daughter at her Montessori school was called the N-word. And then I was doing some diversity training for one of the government uh, agencies. And a woman in my class said, if my, if my mom were gay, I'd never speak to her again. So I looked in all of these three different things, that KKK young man walking, the hatred with a kid calling my daughter that, and this woman saying that she would never speak to her mother if she would. And I said, hate is just hate. So I wrote, I, I would, whenever I get all wired up. <laughs> that's your inspiration and motivation. That's my inspiration. That's a true artist. Yes. It's like, okay, I got to You have to get riled up. <laughs> yeah. You got to get riled up. And I said, like, I got tense. tense. Yeah. And I was like, I got to get this out of me, this, whatever it is. And so I wrote this uh, piece called love and hate on my way to heaven. We stopped and took a detour through hell. 
From a distance, things look pretty okay. I need a closer look to tell. A feast, great food, and decorations. The finest delicacies ever cooked. All ages of gender and race and capacity were everywhere I looked. It appears that they have everything. So how can this be hell? My guide just smiled knowingly and said, look closer. Can't you tell? And then it struck me. They were not eating. They were looking starved and lean. And it appears they had no control over the seating, I asked. Explain to me, what does all this mean? Oh, I've got it. They can't bend their arms. Look more carefully, said my guide. The spoons to which each has been given is long enough to feed the person on the other side. Ah, but why in all cases are they seated across and dependent on the person they hate the most? He said the intensity of the hatred has bonded them. They're stuck together now, said my host. You see, life was and is a workshop. From each situation, there's a lesson to discern. But the greatest is understanding the power of love and hate. That was the basic lesson that each was to learn. A black sat across from a white person who was fuming. I won't feed him, I am white. I'd rather starve than feed a black. To sit at the same table itself isn't right. And the black glared hatefully at the white. All whites are devils and races. I would rather die myself than help even one white subsist. Well, it's beneath me to feed a thin beggar in rags, said the rich who sat across from the poor. While the poor gazed losingly at the plump rich and said, from me, you won't get any more. The one with the cross wouldn't feed the sinner. You're not worthy because you can't see. You're not, quote, one of the saved. So you'll never get fed by me. And the Muslim and the Jew hated each other. Both were still engaged in some earthly feud. Neither would feed the other. They just sat there staring at the food. Buddhists, Baha'is, and Baptists, all religionists, regardless their label, whoever they had exalted themselves above during life, they found seated now across the same table. And the woman helped have contempt for man because man said her role was for serving. Neither would feed the other, neither felt the other deserving. Throughout hell, I saw opposites attract. Each couple bewildered and filled with dismay. No group was absent from this place. Did I mention the straight and the gay? Each hatred seemed greater than the one before. <gasps> Which was worse, I can't rightly say, because after a while, hate is just hate. I don't think I'll ever forget that day. I asked to leave. It was too depressing. My sensitivity to hatred made me just want to cry. Is everyone who can't resolve their hatreds here, I asked? My guide said no, just those who wouldn't even try. Surprisingly, the setting in heaven was identical, except the bonds of love seemed to control the seating. And although everybody was happily talking when I arrived, each stopped and offered me a personal greeting. The heavenly figure approached me and said, Evan, 
as a special place for you. Because while alive, you worked on your prejudices. Take a seat. You'll know what to do. Hmm, love begets love and hate begets hate. What an interesting final accounting. Love or hate, the choice is yours. Just remember someone else may be counting. And you may end up with people just like you. And would that be the only fair thing to do? Think about your life now. Be honest with yourself, confide. Are there some changes that you can make while time is still on your side? Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that beautiful poem. Thank you for your service, your humility, your humanity, and your compassion. And, and really, truly, I'm so humbled that you offered your time today. So thank you so, so much. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Baha'iteachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles.